Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 73. You'll find on page 485 of the Black Pew Bible. As you're turning there, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe that God is good? Do you really believe that? And that God is being good to you? This is the psalmist struggle in Psalm 73. People who don't give a rip about God are doing quite well, thank you very much. And the psalmist envies them. And the psalmist doubts God's goodness to himself. Let me invite you to wade into that problem from Psalm 73. Hear now the word of God. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven? But you, 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, show us who you are. Teach us to know ourselves before your face. Be our rock, our strength our hope, and our help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a day if you were a Christian and you lived in the old Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc nations, which I think that day is mostly passed over there, uh, you would not have had access to a university education and therefore you would not have access to the best jobs. Because you were a Christian. There are people in our day working to deny those opportunities to Christians here in the U.S. A writer for Slate magazine uh, just this month called for uh, Jaylene Hinkle to be kicked off the roster of the women's U.S. soccer team because of her faith in Christ. There are other examples. In Pakistan, a Christian believer named Nadim, who works at a brick kiln, who had agreed with the Muslim owner for a fee of 962 rupees per thousand bricks. Uh, However, the owner only paid him 800 rupees for a thousand bricks. And a year in, Nadim appealed to the owner for the money that was due to him. The owner angrily refused. He called two Muslim supervisors who helped him beat Nadim. They shaved his head, they shaved his eyebrows, they shaved his mustache to publicly humiliate him. They made him stand on one foot under the burning sun for five hours, and whenever his other foot touched the ground, the three of them beat him again. Nadim tried to complain to the police, but he was told by the owner that if he did, they would accuse him of sexual assault or he would be murdered. Nothing ever happens to that owner or that supervisor. We could pile up hundreds of stories, uh, both ancient and modern. Why is it the wicked seem to prosper and God's people take it on the chin? That's the subject of this psalm. The psalm invites you to wrestle with that question. I want to outline the psalm for you and walk through its issue with us. Uh, Let me just highlight the direction the psalm goes. In verses 1 and 2, the theme of the psalm is introduced. Surely God is good to Israel, uh, but I had almost fallen. I had almost slipped. We'll get to that. Then in verses 3 to 15, why? The problem for him, what it was out there with others, and what it was in here with himself that was such a problem to him. 
And then finally in verses 16 to 28, the solution, the resolution, how he came to see things from a different perspective. So that's the flow of the psalm. Let me invite you to consider in the first place the first three verses. And I want to highlight this. Christians can be honest about the problem of evil and envy. Notice his confession where he begins, verse 1. This is actually what he wants you to believe. Truly or surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, don't misunderstand. Pure in heart here doesn't mean sinless or perfect. It's actually about being committed to or undivided in heart towards the Lord. You're on the Lord's side. You trust in the Lord. You believe in the Lord. However sinful you continue to be in this world. God, he says, is good to his people, to his disciples, to those who trust him. That's his conclusion. And he front loads it because he wants you to believe that. But then he describes his own difficulty in believing that and how he doubted. Verse 2, it almost led him to ditch the faith. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I almost threw in the towel, he says. I almost chucked the faith, he says. Why? Verse 3, 4, 4. And this is his reason. This is his explanation. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see what he's doing? He's being very honest about the double source of his religious doubts and frustrations. The first source is what seems to be justice turned upside down. That is, those who are unjust prosper. The wicked, he says, thrive. Everything seems to go right for them. And that seems wrong to him in some way. But the second problem or source of his frustration and doubt is that he sees his own heart. And he envies them. He wants their prosperity. He wants the freedom they seem to enjoy to do whatever they want and get away with it. (laughs) Don't ever think that this is some kind of new problem if you find this to be a problem for you. It's a problem the Bible actually presses on you and invites you to think about. After all, this this psalm is written by a man named Asaph. That was kind of the opening, a psalm of Asaph, right? Who is this guy? Well, he's actually a leader in the temple worship. He's a Levitical priest who had responsibility for leading the choirs and the choruses in the services of worship and for composing music and texts for that worship. King David had actually appointed him back in the days of the tabernacle, even before Solomon's temple was built. In time, we know from other places in the Bible that he became the father of a clan of musicians serving in temple worship. And here he is, this, we might say, a kind of cream of the crop. He didn't just get it by heredity, though, of course, he was a Levite, but he was handpicked by David, evidently for some skills, perhaps his godliness. And here he is, and he doubts God, and he's wondering, he's, he's, he's questioning, is God good and good to me and can I really believe that and so he wants us the Bible wants us to wade into those kinds of waters and not not be shy about them when we see a world that seems upside down 
And that actually, just pause there, is super encouraging. We can talk about these things. We can be honest about them. We don't have to bury them. We don't have to pretend that we're more godly than thinking about that, right? This is beautiful. It means you can come to God, even in worship, and deal with the heart issues you have that break your heart or confuse you or that cause you all kinds of questions or distress or trouble. You don't have to pretend that all is right with the world or that all is right in your world or even the world of your own heart. So that's enormously encouraging. Now, why does he envy the wicked? It seems like a crazy thing to do. Verses 4 to 12, he tells you why. They don't get sick, he says. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. It seems like they live completely healthy lives until, well, okay, everybody dies. And their bodies, he says, are, are fat and sleek. These being a picture of somebody who's well-fed and healthy. And secondly, they don't seem to suffer the problems that the rest of us suffer. Life just works for them. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And notice they have a kind of swagger and confidence about their lives. Far from being anxious or depressed about life, they're proud and they take what they want. Notice verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They, verse 7, live like there's no tomorrow, right? Their eyes swell out from fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. And verses 8 and 9, they just boss people around until they get what they want. They scoff and speak with malice, verse 8. Loftily they threaten what? Oppression. And they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They got this way, this wealth, this prosperity, this success on the backs of others. The poor the weak in society who were no match for them. We would say they climbed the corporate ladder on, uh, or, or by stepping on others. Verse 10 in his description is a little more difficult to translate. Uh, I prefer the alternate ESV rendering, which I think is actually better than the one that your ESV points you to, but you'll see it like at the bottom of your page, that the waters of a full cup are drained by them. Probably here that what he's saying is God's people turn to them and they drink up the abundant waters. In other words, the pattern of life these people are leading actually seems to be attractive. And so people turn and they soak in their every word. They drink from the cup these people are drinking from. They admire them. They, they flatter them. They suck up to them. They want to be them. And verse 11, they get away with it all. In their hearts and with their lives, they mock God while they do it. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Now look, they aren't saying God doesn't exist, but that God is indifferent. He doesn't give a rip. He's uninvolved. How we live doesn't matter to him is what they're saying. And the psalmist envies the fact that they're so unconcerned about God. He, too, the psalmist, would like to live like no one's watching Like no one's taking notes. Like no one will hold him accountable. And so he sums it up by saying, verse 12, this is his summation. Behold, these are the wicked 
always at ease, they increase in riches. Bad guys win. They're rich, wealthy, secure, successful, confident, and carefree. They seem to have the freedom to get away with whatever they want at the expense of others without a peep out of God. And Asaph is saying, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. Why do the wicked enjoy more of the blessings of this life, in this life, than those who are committed to God? My 11th grade math teacher, uh, this was like between Algebra 2 and Calculus, kind of a pre-Calculus trigonometry class, they called it something else. He would solve complicated math problems on the board with the class during class time, calling on people. And yes, we used a chalkboard back then. And, and uh, he would elicit answers from people as we were solving the problem step by step. And, and you could tell that we were just one step away from the final and right answer uh, when he would say, And if we've worked this problem correctly, and if there's any justice in the world, the answer is, you know, but And there was always justice in his world because he always worked the problem correctly. (laughs) Well, the psalmist is saying something like that. If there's any justice in the world, then the wicked, it would seem, who rebel against their creator, who trample on his law, who hurt and injure the innocent, the poor, the weak, to get what they want. Well, then you would think they would get what's coming to them. Why do they thrive? You would think those who follow God would do really well. And so he's concerned about that, that before a just and holy God, the wicked should prosper, but he's also concerned about his own heart. Because he knows his own heart is wicked. He envies it. And both those things are wrong. And so he's, he's angry, verses 13 and 14. All Did you hear the self-pity in this? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You hear that? He's mad at God, basically. He's uh, like a Christian in our day saying, it's not worth it to follow Jesus. Jesus has done nothing for me lately. In fact, it almost seems like I get punished for following Jesus. My life's harder, uh, stricken, rebuked, disciplined. Life isn't easy. So what's he thinking of? Well, he's thinking of himself there, completely self-focused, self-pitying. Most of the time... The simple reason for doubting God is self-pity. Focus on yourself and your trouble, and you'll begin to doubt God. A desire for sovereignty in your own life, a desire to rule your own life, a desire to be your own God and plan your own course and provide for your own needs according to your own wisdom, which, let's admit it, would make life pretty great in this world. And a desire for what we don't have then from our Father in Heaven is a source of this problem. Envy is a real danger and it's the beginning of many downfalls. C.S. Lewis in the preface to his book Screwtape Letters says this, the real mark of hell 
is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. We must picture hell as a place where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. It's a heart gone bad toward God and others. And we all need to beware that we don't cultivate this heart in ourselves the kind of heart that our heart is naturally prone to. Don't cultivate this and it's so easy to do. You're watching episodes of Monk. A fairly benign detective story with an OCD character who makes it all very interesting and fun while he solves a murder every week in less than an hour with commercial interruptions. And you're left rejoicing in his success, but you're never left grieving with the people whose lives have been upended, right? Because the show has to turn out well or you're not going to watch it next week. And if you're not careful, you can begin to think that life actually works this way. Problems get solved in an hour, or they should. People on TV live in a world where they just ride everything out. They drive great cars. Their hair is always neat and tidy. They look beautiful. And even their relationships and their serious romantic relationships never end with heartbreak. There's never any sorrow or grief, no sense of being used or cast off, no sense of shame or guilt. They get, in the language of music, they get their money for nothing and their chicks for free. And you can begin to think, my life ought to be like that too. I want what they're having. Evil, envy, doubt, anger. These are the issues he's dealing with. And God says you can be honest about them. Even when they're in your heart. Now, he gets help. He doesn't leave us there. He's not left there. And he gets help in what follows everything that seems upside down gets turned right side up for him where does that new perspective come from verses 16 and 17 but when i thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task until i went into the sanctuary of god then i discerned their end until i came into the sanctuary of god until i joined in corporate public worship of the living God. It was not till then that I began to understand. And when I did, then I began began to understand. I got relief, he says, not in philosophizing, not in some rap session with my buddies about all the injustices of life. I got relief when when I drew near to God in worship. And God showed me something of himself And myself and the nature of true reality as God declares it. Now, that sounds like something a preacher would say. You know, you ought to come to public worship when you've got troubles and cares of heart. And, and, well, sure. Yeah. We actually believe that God meets with his people through Jesus in some unique way when we gather together. Every week is a little bit different. 
for each individual, but God meets us and he speaks to us. As one pastor put it, we human beings are like the moon. We lived on borrowed light. When our faces turn away from God, we are left with nothing but the darkness of our own shadows. The first step out of doubt is to turn our eyes from the problem to catch a glimpse of God himself. And so says Ralph Davis, adoring God will lift more of our burdens than understanding our burdens. And so he comes to corporate public worship and he gets a new perspective. And let me highlight four big things, I think, uh, here. First, in verse 15, he learns not to trust his own thoughts. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's he saying? I, I can't talk like this out loud. Like what? Like verses 13 and 14, all in vain have I kept my heart pure, right? I, I, I better not say that out loud, he says. Now he says it out loud in the song. But you understand he says it out loud after he's come to a resolution about his doubts. But he didn't say it out loud before then. He doesn't speak his doubts here, but he prays. He keeps quiet. He draws near to God. He says, if I had talked like that out loud, I would have been a traitor. I would have betrayed the family of God, the generations of your people. In other words, he controls his tongue. He thinks before he speaks. He gives thought to the well-being of others. And where has he just been entirely self-focused? Now, having been in the presence of God with God's people, he's beginning to think about the effect of his own words on others. Now, listen, he's he's not faking it. He's not saying, I just pretended that everything was fine, right? He didn't just go around saying, it's all good. No, I'm well. (laughs) Smile, smile. Fake, fake. That's not what he's doing, right? I mean, if you do that, if you do that long enough, you'll chuck Christianity eventually because you're never dealing with reality because reality stinks at times. But what is he doing? He's thinking about somebody else and the effect of his own words on their faith. And he wishes not to destroy their faith. So he keeps his mouth shut. That doesn't mean you and I or that he didn't or we can't go to a trusted confidant or speak to a pastor or an elder and say, I've got these real issues I'm struggling with. That's, that's, that's not, he's, say, he's not saying you can't do that. But as the leader of God's people in corporate public worship, he didn't declare all this without some resolution ahead of time. Perhaps the most faithful thing you can do is keep your mouth shut for Jesus' sake and for the sake of Jesus' people, is what he says. Otherwise, I might betray or... or Uh, Act like a traitor to the people of God. No, 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 he says. I have learned uh, not to trust my own thoughts and my own words and my own perspective. Until I have God's. Now, secondly, he remembers in the sanctuary that life is a journey that comes to an end. 
right? Verse 16 and 17, until I went to the house of God, end of verse 17, then I discerned their end. He's looking down the road at how God will deal with the wicked, those who do not trust him, those who cast him off. How will he deal with them? Truly, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Verse 27, for for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. This is what he's saying. He's, He's looking down at the end of the life of a believer versus the end of a life of somebody who rejects God and lives like it. And he says, look, the believer is with God in the new heavens and the new earth, with God and with the people of God forever. In a much better place than this. But the reality is if you reject God. One day he says the end of that is. You are cast away from God. And from God's people. In a worse place than this. And the best things you'll ever have. Ever. Are the things you grabbed for here and now. And even those will be taken from you. He looks at life as a journey. The story is not over with people, nor the story of what God is doing with them. This doesn't explain God's purposes for why he allows it in any particular situation, at any particular time. Why this trouble at this time in my life, Lord? He's not explaining that there are mysteries. But we do know this, that God is generous and open-handed to sinners. So he does good to all so that even the wicked enjoy his generous benevolence. And God is patient with people who scorn him all day long. And we know that part of his patience, as Peter will put it, is that it's an expression of his kindness. And particularly so that... Those who will be saved will be saved. I mean, if God said, this is the end, I'm cutting everybody off right now, it would be the end and the end of salvation to the ends of the earth. But God is patient. God continues to permit evildoers to do evil in order that God might continue to be gracious to sinners over time until all his people are safely brought home to himself and so you can trust this God even though you can't see with the with your own eyes but just the eyes of faith you can trust this God you can trust him because the cross tells you this we have even a better vision than this writer I mean let the injustice of what happened to Jesus which we just read about unjustly arrested and interrogated And when they ask, when Pilate asks, what's the charge against him? They just say, well, we would have brought him to you if, you know, he hadn't done some evil. Well, then you deal with him. Pilate gets it. They're making stuff up. You just deal with him according to your law. No, 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 no. We're not allowed to put people to death. And what we want is his death. You understand that the just God faced the injustice of humanity So that he could, in love and justice, reconcile the unjust to himself. And he did that by suffering upon the cross for sinners like us. 
You can trust then a God who says, I'm not going to make everything right here and now. But I made things right between me and sinners on the cross. And I will apply that in the glory which is to come. You can trust this God. Now, thirdly, he gained self-understanding. Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. What's he say about himself? I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. What's he saying? I I got caught up in it. He's acknowledging his error. I was stupid, he says, and ignorant. I was a beast. I was wrong. Lord, I didn't see that at the time. I see that now is what he's saying. They say that everything a pig eats is on the bone in 24 hours. I guess the expression is because a pig will eat anything and it it suddenly is metabolized and stuck to the body. Right? It is what it eats. And so for us, Asaph says, you know what? I was, I, was, I was drinking the water they were holding out. And I became like them. Like brute beast before you, Lord. And it began to define me. I felt like an animal before you. Full of resentment and bitterness. This, by the way, is one good reason why public worship is so helpful. Because in it we see God more clearly. And in it we see ourselves more clearly. And we might see things about ourselves we'd rather not see. But better to see them than to be blind to our own ignorance. And so he gains self-understanding. And finally, he's reminded, verses 25 to the end, that God is God's goodness to him. That's the good that God is to his people. God himself. Nevertheless, verse 25, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. I was an ignorant beast towards you, but you never let me go. I was refreshed then in public worship that you walked with me, Lord. You held me by my right hand. You led me and guided me with wisdom and counsel. And you won't let me go. You receive me to glory. And you are all that I need. Verse 25. You're sufficient for me. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Look, all week long maybe you've set your heart on the wrong stuff. And you come here and God reminds you there's something that matters more. There's something that's better. God himself. And there's constancy on God's part. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart, my portion forever. Not even death can separate me from him. I am constantly with you, verse 23. I want only to be with you, verse 25. I will always be with you, verse 26. It's already true, he says, you've taken hold of my right hand. It's already true, you're guiding and leading me. It's already true, you're the strength of my heart, and it will be true, you will take me home. 
It's just that he didn't see that when he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Sometimes you're just blind to things like that. It's easy to be blind to stuff. Uh, Roy Lauren, a expositor of the Bible, tells about a workman employed at a, a building project in which the construction had to happen through the night. And while this guy was busy on the edge of a wall, several stories high, he lost his balance on the edge. But in his fall, he reached out with his hands and he grabbed the lip or edge of the wall. And there he was, dangling with his hands gripping over the edge of that wall and screaming uh, as he hung desperately, hoping somebody would hear him to rescue him. The problem was there were all sorts of uh, construction noises going on. There were riveting machines at work and other mechanical machines making all kinds of noise. And it was loud and nobody heard him. And gradually, over minutes and time, his, his arms and hands grew numb. And he couldn't hold on any longer. And almost against his own will, of course, his fingers let go. And with a terrifying scream, he fell. Three inches to a scaffold that was underneath him all the time, but he just never saw it in the dark. That's sort of like Asaph here. There's a scaffold, he says. The Lord is holding me by my right hand, even while I go insane about other people. And this worldly cares. But God is continually with me. He is my help. And so he concludes, but for me it is good. What's good? What's his good? It is good to be near God. God is my good. Everybody else may get the whole world. They may get all the toys. They may get the best job, every promotion, all the success and happiness and fun this world could offer. But what they don't have, the psalmist says, is the one goodness that matters and that lasts. Nearness to God. And so the believer can pray like like the psalmist in Psalm 32. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord make it so for us. Let's pray. Father, you know uh, the filth of our own hearts, our our, uh, our divided hearts, our love of this world and the things of it, our pride of life. And all our failures to be faithful to you who are faithful to us. Pardon us. Cleanse us. Restore us. Teach us what's most valuable and that is you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.